Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features a luminary in the world of medicine and science, Dr. Carl June, joined by general partner Jorge Conde. Carl is an immunologist and oncologist at the University of Pennsylvania, where he pioneered treatment with CAR T-cells, a remarkable story that he gets into during the episode. You know, we went from thinking that we had literally accelerated her death. We thought she was going to die. I mean, the ICU people had never seen, you know, that you get something called an Apache score, which is a combination of all your vital signs, oxygenation, and by all of those standard prognostic things, she should have been dead. Carl also discussed his background and how an allergy led to him studying immunology in humans, as well as his take on where cancer treatments are headed next. Now the bottleneck, it was this bottleneck with science and understanding, but now it's there's 800 trials and they take time, and but to open each trial takes time. But we have this amazing set of science innovations that um, are piling up because it's a lot faster to do the experiments in mice than it is to get all the regulatory things of getting a trial open. So it's going to take, I think the innovation is going to solve the barriers in solid tumors. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Welcome to the A6NZ BioEats World podcast. Appreciate you being here. Well, thanks, um, Jorge. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you. You have such an incredible background in terms of sort of this illustrious career, but you've also had this indelible impact on how we think about treating cancer. Walk us through the beginning of the journey um, and how you sort of end up where you are now. You know, my father was a chemical engineer, and I thought that's what I was going to be. Everyone was an engineer in my family. And then... Um, you know, I wound up in the Navy because of the Vietnam War and a low draft number in wow. 1971. I'd actually been admitted to Stanford in the class of 1971. And then, but depending on your birth date that year on, because uh, it was a lottery on who went into the army for the Vietnam War. And uh, so I ended up not going to Stanford and then, you know, went to the Naval Academy where I would go in as an officer and not, you know, be mm-hmm. in the infantry in Vietnam. And then so I didn't know what their curriculum was or anything, just went there and it turned out they had started a pre-med program the year before. And it was a combined uh, biology and chemistry major. And so I did that and found out I really was excited about it. And then, you know, fortunately, the Vietnam War ended in 74 and mm-hmm. I graduated then in 75 and the Navy then uh, sent me to medical school. 
My mother had had lupus when I was growing up. So we had a lot of autoimmune disease in my family. And so I started when I was in medical school in every free elective I could do, I started working and I started taking graduate courses in immunology and then uh, worked in uh, Roger Rawson's laboratory. He was an immunologist and, and nephrologist studying immune complexes and arthritis. So I, I really got interested in that. And then I graduated medical school a year early and then they I uh, had that a whole year free as a, on the Navy scholarship. So I went to Switzerland and at the World Health Organization, I studied immune complexes and malaria. You know, I had a background in mouse, uh, you know, immunology. And at that point, I actually got allergic to mice. You developed an allergy to mice? Yeah, yeah. And so I would get asthma whenever I went in the mouse room. So I ended up then, you know, I was, it forced me to study human T cells, which was the biggest blessing ever because most people didn't do that. All of immunology back then was inbred mice. And uh, so I was one of the few doing initial signal transduction assays on primary human T cells. And, and that's how I got into T cell activation and um, how the signal transduction pathways worked to activate and control T cells. Because when uh, the Navy sent me to, to work on bone marrow transplants, at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and we saw what happens when T cells really go wild in the setting of an allo transplant. I mean, it's literally true that graft versus host disease can kill you in just a week or two faster than leukemia. I mean, it was amazing. And um, to see what allogeneic T cells could do, I mean, the organ damage was unbelievable. So, so that's where I started studying the biochemistry of signal transduction and you know, compounds like cyclosporin and so on, you know, could we control the T-cell activation? And so I backed into it that way. So a dysfunction in your immune system is what led you to study T-cell immunology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So I had an 11-year obligation to pay back the Navy for mm -hmm. sending me to graduate school and uh, uh, medical school and, uh, and undergraduate. And I did a three-year fellowship in, in oncology, two of it in the lab at the Fred Hutchinson. And I worked in an immunogenetics lab there. And then at age 31, I was given my own lab. It's, you know, now that would be very young. But, and so it was just a shorter training period. Uh, I was never allowed to get a PhD. So I started off with only two and a half years of lab experience. I had my own, was running a lab, you know, when I was in the Navy. And it was a wonderful thing because we had intramural funding. The grants were easy to get, you know, compared to these days. And so I worked night and day in a lab. I had spent one month a year as a clinician and the rest of the time working in a lab. And I continued what I'd started at the Fred Hutch, which is the signal pathway of CD28. I was really interested in that. And the only grant I could get from the Navy to study that was an HIV. Uh, we ended up having several papers in science on how CD28 interacted with HIV and T cells. It turns out CD28 can actually turn off the HIV co-receptor, which is CCR5. Mm -hmm. And so by accident, we discovered that when we activated T-cells to grow from AIDS patients, their T-cells were CD3 and CD28, the virus could not reproduce. It was an amazing finding. And so that was my first science paper. You know, it turns out that there's a yin and a yang between the CTLA-4 molecule and CD28. So CTLA-4 turns on the HIV co-receptor, mm -hmm. and then it's, they get infected 
and they're like sitting ducks. The virus just kills them. But if you flip it around and stimulate the cells through CD28, it's like the people who are born with a CCR5 homozygous deficiency, you can't infect them with HIV because they don't right, have exactly. the Exactly. The virus can infect the immune cell and it turns the tide of where the immune yeah, cell can, can in fact go after the virus. That's how we found out we were trying to grow T cells from HIV infected patients who basically had none. And, you know, and that's why the first CAR T cell trial ever done was in HIV patients. In cell genesis, you know, a biotech back in South San Francisco, way back in the 80s and, and early 90s, had um, they had made a car for HIV. And then when we discovered this way to grow T cells through CD28, they came to us and said, can we work and do a trial? And that was the first trial done was using the CD28 coded beads that we made to activate the T cells and then to introduce the car molecule. And Thermo Fisher now sells those beads. You know, I was in the Office of Naval Research when we invented and patented them, but it was all done for HIV. And then now all the big pharmas use that as a way to activate T cells. You know, that's what Novartis does to make CAR T cells now. For the audience that maybe that is less steeped in, in sort of cancer immunology, let's do the quick primer on, on what a CAR T uh, cell therapy is. And so a CAR T cell is, you know, it takes your own immune system and we take the T cells out from the blood is the most uh, straightforward way. And then we activate the cells that we had discovered for HIV infection you, you know, through their T cell receptor and the CD28 molecule. And then we can put in an antibody redirected CAR molecule, you know, chimeric antigen receptor. And the first ones that we tested were against CD19 which is on all B-cell malignancies. And so we basically then can retarget a patient's T-cells that were evolutionarily you know, developed to, to fight viral infections with an antibody redirection. And they could basically, you can target to any cell type virtually that you want to. So it's a flexible platform. It turned out that the cells had this amazing property when they would bind with high affinity to their target on the, the leukemia cell, C19, the CAR T cell would kill that leukemia cell, but then the CAR T cell divided. Mm -hmm. And that was, an, it was much more potent in humans than we ever saw in our preclinical models. Because in that regard, it's a, it's a persistent living medicine, right? It divides, yeah, so, it, it replicates, it, it and, persists. And it senses, body. it's a smart cell, so it knows when to kill and when to not. And the first patients we treated in 2010 you know, now our first patient, he's actually out near where you are. He, he goes to Stanford for his health, health checkups. But he, 13 years ago, we infused him. It was August 2010. And he still has CAR T cells and no leukemia. Circulating throughout his body. Yeah. And, you know, they so there it's a memory cell that's now specific for leukemia cells in him. And uh, so that was a real shift. We infused maybe about 100 million CAR T cells into patients, but over... The period of two weeks, the patients would make about a kilogram of CAR T cells. So that's about 10 to the 12th. I mean, it's a huge biosynthetic challenge to the body to make. It's like making an entire new organ. So the 100 million that we would infuse, what we could trace them and show that they would be about 10 to the 12th, two weeks later. The responding patients, which in acute leukemia, 90% of them had a complete response. 
those the malignant leukemia cells would go away, and then the CAR T cells would go down into a memory level. They would go down to about a one thousandth of what they were their peak, you know, the C max time. So they regulate their persistence um, in a way similar to our immune system. They effectively become surveillance, right? So yes. if for whatever oh, yeah. reason the, the the malignancy were to come back, the cells are yeah. present and they could react. They stay on patrol and we can show that, you know, intentionally in mice where we, you know, they can go into remission and then the CAR T cells, you know, go down to very low persistence level, but then we can rechallenge the mice with tumors and the CAR T cells come back, but go up in number again. And then the tumor goes away again. It's really a, it's a living drug, as you said. You've mentioned CD19, which is a marker that's present on, on B cells that become malignant. B cells, of course, are part of the immune system and malignancies in B cells give rise to leukemias. The first use of CAR T cell therapy in cancer, where it's been shown to be effective, has been in both adult and eventually in children leukemias. And so the individual you mentioned that lives in the Bay Area that is treated at Stanford that's been going on 10 years or beyond malignancy-free, that individual was treated as an adult. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was 65 years old, when we, 63 when we treated him. We've also had examples where children have been treated. One of the most notable, of course, is, is Emily Whitehead, who you treated. Tell us that story. Our preclinical data was done with pediatric leukemia, xenograft, so mice. We could take children with refractory leukemia that CD19 positive and then give that to mice. They would get them human leukemia. And then we could, that's how we showed that the CAR T cells worked and allowed us to treat patients. And then we had a protocol to treat both adults and pediatric leukemia that was C19 positive. But because of the way the ethics are written through the FDA and IRBs, we had to first start in adults. And so that started, as I mentioned, uh, in 2010. And when we had data on a handful of patients, then we were allowed to treat pediatric patients. And so in April of 2012, the first patient was treated uh, and she was seven years old, uh, Emily Whitehead, and she had, you know, very advanced leukemia with literally days to weeks of survival anticipated and, and had a complete response. But also, it's where we saw really, for the first time, severe cytokine release syndrome. Uh, just to define it for, for folks, you know, that is when essentially the immune system overheats, right? It's often called the cytokine storm. Yes, that's exactly. It's a hi synthetically hyperactivated immune system because, you know, I mentioned you can get 10 to the 12 CAR T cells all fighting one antigen, in this case, a C19 leukemia blast tumor cell. And that when they kill those cells, the CAR T cells themselves make a lot of cytokines that cause fever. And then they activate other cells in the immune system like macrophages and that also make cytokines. And so Emily Whitehead had a, had a temperature of 106 degrees for three days. And it was not due to an infection. It was all due to tumor being literally you know, ablated by the CAR T cells in a very rapid time. It was like what you used to say, shock and awe. I mean, her immune system was hyperactivated. And we found out that was the fever was driven by an IL-6 and IL-1 cytokine cascade. And so was that predicted as a potential adverse event? Oh, she had multi-organ failure, was on very near uh, death at the time when we figured out what she had. So the answer was, it was not predicted in our, our preclinical mouse models, you know, that were these humanized mice 
given human T cells and human leukemia, they did not get the fever. Now, for people who've been in the bio industry and pharma, they know that there's a lot of difference in the mouse and humans in cytokine biology. So for instance, there's been a lot of experiments over the decades, decades literally, trying to treat sepsis, you know, which is basically a cytokine storm due to bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of tumor necrosis factor, TNF-alpha that's secreted. And there's turns out, and there's a lot of ways you can cure that in mice, and then it's never worked in humans. You know, so there's a, a long graveyard of trials trying to treat this the sepsis. And uh, turns out there's a thousandfold difference between mice and humans in the lethal dose of TNF-alpha, the tumor necrosis factor. Wow. And so our mice didn't get cytokine release syndrome, but the humans sure did. And, you know, humans are much more sensitive to TNF and the cytokines than the mouse. So we found out, though... You know, by basically biocorrelative assays, we, when Emily was in this refractory fever that wouldn't, we couldn't find an infection and, and, and other anti-inflammatory things like steroids did not, did not touch the fever. So then what we found is her cytokine inter, uh, interleukin-6 or IL-6 was about a thousand fold above baseline. And fortunately, there was a drug just re three months before that, FDA approved to treat arthritis, juvenile arthritis, which is also has pathologic high levels of interleukin-6. Fortunately, we were able to get that for Emily and it saved her life. And this is acting on a timescale of hours or days, right? Yes. I mean, we literally, she was in the ICU with multi-organ failure and we got the blood values back that she had this thousandfold. It was the only one that was really actionable. Of, of a cytokine that was really so far out of whack like that. And within about six hours, we were able to get IRB approval to give her off-label the IL-6 antagonist. And it literally within hours, it had effects on her. It was really is anything as close to a miracle as you ever see. And so the storm, the storm subsides within hours of her getting the, yeah. the antibody against IL-6. The CAR T cells are doing their thing. How quickly did you you know that this had worked? So, you know, we went from thinking that we had literally accelerated her death. We thought she was going to die. I mean, the ICU people had never seen, you know, that you get something called an Apache score, which is a combination of all your vital signs, oxygenation. And by all of those standard prognostic things, she should have been dead. I mean, and that's what they told us. And then Stephen Grupp was the principal investigator, the pediatrician, who we, you know, advised to give you test uh, of this anti-IL-6 because there was nothing else we could come up with. When he walked into the ICU with a drug that had never been given to an oncology patient, they said he was a cowboy. And what, you know, what was he doing giving this drug Tosi what? You know, they'd never, and now it turns out tocilizumab is actually FDA approved for COVID cytokine release syndrome. And oh, it's wow. been given, yeah. It was a randomized trial showed it worked during the COVID pandemic. It's been given for many now kinds of hyperinflammation like this. And uh, it was just initially made to treat you know, arthritis. <laughs> Emily is treated how many years ago now? Well, treated 2012. So she's now been, we just had like her 11 year celebration of cancer free. Uh, and she is now in about two weeks admitted and started at the University of Pennsylvania as a freshman. 
That is a fantastic full circle moment. Uh, yep. She gonna she gonna work in your lab? Well, she actually um, she's an interested in environmental sciences and uh, also filmmaking. Fantastic. We'll see what she does. Yeah, she needs to get away from biomedicine now and be uh, a normal college freshman. <laughs> that's fantastic and understandable. Yeah. One of the things that's remarkable about what you do with CAR T cell therapy, you're essentially taking out a, a patient's immune cells, engineering it to recognize its its own cancer, and then infusing it back in. You can't pick up a CAR T cell therapy at, at your local CVS. Uh, this is obviously something that's very, very involved. When you look at sort of the, at the future, engineering cell therapies implies that you can iterate on them, you can improve on them. You know, where, what are the vectors for innovation that you see here? It's changed so much since when we started. You know, we, we did the initial experiment, never thinking it would be a commercially approved drug, but just to kind of prove the purpose. Could you retarget a cell that evolved in us in a Darwinian way to fight viruses? Could you turn it into a cancer killer? And never thinking it could go commercial, but it was so effective that that's what happened. As you know, there's now an industry on that. And uh, and what's happened since has been, you know, our first patient, Emily was treated in 2012. That's the year that Jennifer Dowden and Charpentier published CRISPR, Cas9. And so what's happened is we've had cell therapy, which is now a burgeoning industry, but these orthogonal gene editing, abilities to rewrite prime editing, base editing, Cas9. And that gives us this huge runway of synthetic enhancements of T-cell and function that'll both improve potency and safety. So I'm totally excited about the science. And, and you know, when we did it back in 2010, that first patient, there was only three labs, I think, in the world working on these. And now there's almost a thousand trials yep. when you look at clinicaltrials.gov. So the tool set has, has evolved in an amazing way that I never would have predicted this genome rewriting and editing, which is complementary to the cell therapies. And then innovation, this is the sad part though, is gonna outstrip our ability to rapidly test and find out what works. Now the bottleneck, it was this bottleneck was science and understanding, but now it's, there's 800 trials and they take time, and but to open each trial takes time. But we have this amazing set of science innovations that um, are piling up because it's a lot faster to do experiments in mice than it is to get the all the regulatory things of getting a trial open. So it's going to take, I think the innovation is going to solve the barriers in solid tumors because that's where, you know, I think it's mostly engineering issues. For, for, for context, so leukemias uh, represent roughly 10% of all cancers. The sort of unaddressed 90% of, of cancer are solid tumors, organ-based tumors. What are some of the barriers that exist today? One barrier in solid tumors is not having an ideal target like CD19. So, okay. so identifying what to go after, what makes yeah. this and, solid tumor unique. And so an unfortunate, there's not one target right now that would go for all solid tumors, the 90% of cancer. But I think that we'll have a warehouse of targeting constructs that, that you know, will for basically any kind of tumor. And then the other issue is this issue of either penetrating and getting into the tumor, or once the T cell gets in the tumor, continue to work and not get shut down by the tumor. And yes, which is because the tumors develop essentially a barrier, right? Or a hostile yeah. environment 
to the immune system, if you will. They have both. So some of them literally, it's like a castle with a moat system and they mm-hmm. sarcomas and some pancreatic cancers have this uh, impenetrable, you know, even antibodies don't, per water diffusion doesn't work well and neither does the cell moving into it. And so that's a barrier. And then, but then there's another issue, which is the tumor microenvironment can be toxic, you know, usually is acidic and hypoxic. And so the way around that is to um, essentially arm these cells with the ability to to navigate and, and survive in this, so to speak, hostile environment? Yeah. So there's many examples now where you can use various approaches to target into the tumor, you know, and then once they're in there, you know, there are metabolic rewiring approaches. T-cell can um, adapt into the, what the tumor microenvironment is, which is not the same as a lymph, a lymph node which is favorable for T-cells. These are significant challenges, but ones that at least there's the promise can be addressed with the various yeah. you know, tools that are available to, to you. I'm optimistic that, that, um, that they'll be overcome. So that's the exciting thing is the field is having very rapid preclinical development now. Where are we on the journey of being able to think that cancer might someday be a manageable chronic condition where it's not fatal. It's something you don't die from cancer. You'll die with cancer. I'm hoping that we can actually get to where we cure cancer, Mm -hmm. but there are other approaches. I mean, one is, as you said, you know, whether to turn it into a chronic disease with, and keeping it in at bay. Another is a cancer interception approach is where you can find cancer before it becomes clinically evident, blood biopsies. Then they're much more susceptible to vaccine approaches and and don't require such heavy duty approaches as when you have someone with an advanced stage cancer. So I think, you know, we're going to see early stage diagnosis and interception, and then even vaccine to people at risk. That leaves us with great hope. It's remarkable what you and your team have, have done to contribute to the tool chest with cell therapies that gives so many people hope and, and hopefully will continue to do so. Let me ask you one final question. What do you wish that more people knew about cancer? and our efforts to treat cancer? Because this is a disease that unfortunately will directly or indirectly touch most of us. What I wish they knew, you know, we have to blame ourselves that we haven't educated the public. So what I think we need is the lay public needs to know that in 1900, the number one cause of death was tuberculosis. And then in 1950, you know, I was born in 1953, the number one cause of death was heart disease. The pharma industry had not figured out what they've done with cholesterol medicine all that's radically changed that. And how much the lifespan's gone up, you know, what happened with COVID because of all the basic science research. What the public needs to understand uh, that, you know, cancer can be solved, but it's going to take research. People just, you know, unless you're in the medical field, you know, people don't understand how much life has radically changed based on, you know, research funding. And, and we need that more than ever now because it, we're within grasp of these. It's no longer heart disease is like it was. Now it's cancer and then it's going to be dementia and, you know, issues that what we look at as unsolved healthcare issues. Wow. Well, thank you, uh, Carl, for, for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you for all the work you and your colleagues have done to push the frontier on what we can do in cancer. And hopefully when we have this conversation 50 years from now, cancer will be a footnote. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Jorge. Please note that A16Z invested in Team Unity, 
Dr. June as an individual equity holder in Teamunity and inventor of some of the technology licensed to Teamunity. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Disclosures.